Hello, everyone. This week, I have another person from high school on the podcast. I went to school with some really cool people is what I'm finding out. A lot of people have done really awesome things. And this person, Christina Giacona, and I were in band together. I think I ended up being more of a geek later in life than her. We started out both band geeks together, but she is a professional musician, audio engineer, composer. I really like that she just has a lot of very tangible advice based on her lived experiences as an artist. She's also a college professor, and I feel like the students who have her as an instructor are really fortunate because they have someone who's just practical, who knows what they've been through, and who's going to try to help them succeed. And I can almost imagine it'd be really awesome to be in her class at this point. So we talk a lot about her career and how she's got to where she she is, but also just about things she'd like to see in the future in the music industry. And I think it's really interesting because it's something that all of us listen to. All of us like to listen to music, or most people do. I don't know anyone who doesn't like any music at all. I did listen to her album. I'm going to have all the links to everything she talks about in the show notes. And I just hope that you get out of this one that if you're a creative person especially, but anything else, you do it yourself. I think that was a big advice for me that I got from it. It's just if you want to do a thing, do it yourself. And I think other people have talked about this. And this is almost a theme I'm seeing with a certain type of guest I have that they just go and try something. And kind of... I don't know if they do it fearlessly. They might actually have a lot of trepidation doing it, but it appears to be fearless. They just go and try the thing. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Christina Giacona. Thanks so much for listening. And of course, don't forget to like, subscribe, follow, any of that that you can do. Write a nice review for me. I would really appreciate it. And let me know if you have any thoughts on the episode. I've gotten some feedback lately. People have let me know how things go. It actually helps keep me going. And it also is great because I can tell the guest what people liked about their messaging as well. So it's really nice to hear from people more than work pot at gmail.com. And thanks everyone. Enjoy the show. Welcome to more than work. The podcast reminding you that your self-worth is defined by more than your job title. I'm Rabia, an IT project manager, comedian, nonprofit volunteer, and sometimes activist. Every week, I'll chat with a guest about pursuing passions outside of work or creating meaningful opportunities inside the workplace. As you listen, I hope you'll be inspired to do the same. Here we go. Welcome back, everyone. And today I have another person from high school, but this time it's actually someone who was in my sister's class. My sister and I are two months apart, so it wasn't that big of an age difference, but it was enough where she was more in my sister's circle than mine. And I'm really excited to be talking to her today, Christina Giacona, music producer. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. This is really, it's already fun. It's already fun just seeing your face. and. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> and no one else can because it's a podcast, so too bad. Next time, videocast. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, why don't you just introduce yourself where we're talking to you from right now? Yeah, I am located in Oklahoma City. I'm a music producer. I am a college professor at the University of Oklahoma. I've been getting into producing classical music for um, film and for CDs and records and things like that. And started my own business called Onyx Lane, which while it's based in Oklahoma City, actually has roots in Castaic, California. It was the street I grew up on. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So I'm uh, here to answer uh, questions that come up uh, about music and life, I guess. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe Castaic. So, so, so people know Castaic is a suburb north of Los Angeles, and you might have heard of Santa Clarita because of the Santa Clarita diet and things like that, and we were a little bit north of there, too more of a truck stop kind of town you could say yeah i haven't been back in a while but i feel like it looks the same i think it looks pretty much the same they added a ralph's and starbucks and then i think one Ooh. of those went away so yeah. oh <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i'm pretty sure it's about the same too it's been a while yeah so we were in high school band together now my path took me 
to owning several guitars over the last 25, 30 years and not learning how to play any of them. And your path took you into doing music. How did you just kind of, did you decide right after school that you were going to keep going with music or what was, what was that path? Yeah. You know, as everybody in high school, you have ideas and hopes and dreams that are realistic and then some that you need to somehow find a way to put that into some kind of paying entity. But I knew I wanted to do music. I didn't know specifically what. I played clarinet in high school, band, and I did the youth orchestra at the community college. And I knew I could do a music degree going in. And I actually only applied to one college with only one degree option, and that was Cal State Northridge, which wow. I ended up going to. They had an early acceptance. Like, they let you know, like, early on if you got accepted to the program. And I got accepted, so then I just stopped applying. <laughs> yeah, well, that's smart. There was a fee every time we applied, so. <laughs> yeah, and it wasn't like, looking back, I'm like, why did I do that? But, you know, I mean, it was what it was. So I actually started with a music industry uh, degree path. And I I think it was my first semester, they said, you know, if you switch to clarinet performance, you could get a full ride scholarship. And I was like, that one, that's the one. And so I I took the same classes with a focus in clarinet. And then I want to say my junior year, I decided that I knew I wanted to teach music, but probably at the collegiate level. And so to do so, I would need at least a master's, possibly a doctorate. So I got a doctorate in clarinet performance and then I also have almost a PhD in cultural anthropology as well so who knows where that came from no (laughs) (laughs) well with anthropology I guess you can find out right like (laughs) yes yes no it was more at I like I said I teach at the University of Oklahoma you get to take two free classes every semester oh wow so I was teaching Native American music and I wanted to learn more about anthropology I had to declare a major after 12 hours so that was that and then Yes, now I'm supposed to be writing a dissertation, but you know, talking on a podcast instead. Yeah, well, it seems like a good seems like a good use of time. Yes, with clarinet performance and with going all the way to the doctorate level in that, what does that entail? I mean, I've not met anyone who has a doctorate in actually the performance of an instrument. So it has to do with a lot of clarinet playing. No, <laughs> you would hope so, right? Um, so. Honestly, what you're trying when you take these degrees that are focused in like one specific instrument, you are trying to become um, a professional quality player, but also a pedagogue. And so the doctoral program is about specifically honing your skills as a clarinet player, but then how to teach those skills. And uh, so I am the second clarinetist in the Fort Smith Symphony in Arkansas. So uh, once a month, I actually drive out there and uh, play. I had a clarinet studio for a long time, but when we started doing more audio recording and production, it just, there wasn't time. So all the clarinetists in the world, please continue teaching your programs and your studios because <laughs> it's a yeah. really, it's a really important thing. Yeah, no, that's really cool. And did you have to, when you got out of school, you had to go audition basically to different orchestras? Yeah, I, so there's kind of two pass once you have a doctorate or you don't have to have a doctorate it's to, to be in a professional orchestra that's hopefully full-time or you're going to do some aspect of teaching mm-hmm. so I auditioned for the Fort Smith Symphony and it was part-time which was perfect for me and I, I took a few full-time auditions but I knew I to the core like my core is I'm an academic and a teacher and a performer so I needed to find some way to do all mm-hmm. those but it's not uncommon for people who are playing in like the LA field they also teach at like the, the colleges surrounding as well yeah, and so what what are you teaching right now? What's the kind of curriculum? So I'm teaching mostly music and culture classes. So I'm teaching Native American music. I often teach world music and American popular music. And I'm also teaching a capstone class for the School of Music, mostly seniors, super seniors as well. Essentially, the class is, a capstone is supposed to be encompassing everything that you've learned throughout the last four or five years. But our shift is... Well, you have this degree in music, now what? So what Mm -hmm. are career paths, job opportunities, things in the future that don't necessarily involve just playing your instrument or just teaching? So that's uh, the class I'm I'm teaching this semester. It's really fun. We have a lot of guests come in and talk about their journey Mm -hmm. and what they do in the industry now. That's cool. I'm 
in a program right now where we're going to have a capstone at the end, and I actually didn't know what it entailed, so this gives me a better idea of that, too. Yeah. <laughs> so for, for our students specifically, the first half of the semester is how do you apply for jobs, mm-hmm. preparing all your academic and professional materials, and then what are career opportunities that you could essentially try and get into after graduation. Yeah. And, oh, cool. and they do a little project, you know, based, based off of what they want to do in the future. Yeah. Are these undergrad students or mm-hmm. graduate students? Oh, cool. Yeah, they're that's, undergrad. That's really good because I think just like, I mean, for people who get out of high school and maybe aren't going to go to college, there's not really a good path necessarily. And then when you get out of college, it's the same thing. I mean, there's this assumption that you got a college degree, now you're going to have a job right away. But especially in the arts, that's really difficult. But even outside of that, there's just a... It's almost an ethics issue at this point. Like people are investing so much money and going into massive debt, getting an education, and then don't have any guidance after that. So, oh yeah, yes, yeah, that's cool. You're doing that. And as far as the popular music course, what's a typical lesson in that? So we essentially start with big band jazz, and then just kind of go through the music industry and discuss different time periods and the music that was so I I mean I like the 60s so I kind of spend mm-hmm. a lot of time I'm surprised my students don't know who the Beatles are so. they really don't they really don't yeah. and so I was like so I had a recording session about a month <laughs> and a half ago and it was for a track for Julian Lennon and so I wanted to come yeah. and tell my students like oh my gosh I just recorded this track for Julian Lennon and I was like John Lennon's son and they're like who and I'm like no <laughs> oh no I mean that's so weird you know just because well I guess because our parents are all of the age where they were into the Beatles or or they at least had made a decision they were a Stones person or Beatles person but the Beatles were still part of some kind of discussion yes right? yes so how oh man it's so crazy it's so crazy mm-hmm that's wild. And then for the Native American music, how did you get into that? You know, I was offered a teaching job, and that was one of the classes that needed to be filled. And so I was like, yes, of course, totally. Uh, that was 13 years ago. Mm. And uh, I actually didn't realize how much I knew about the subject matter. So I got my master's degree at the University of New Mexico, and I focused a lot of my extracurricular research topics on Native American music. And then when I I went to the University of Oklahoma, where I now teach, uh, a lot of the options were Native American culture specific. And so it was this actually was a really natural fit. It was unexpected career path change, but I love it. I love it. And then so my cultural anthropology PhD is actually focused on Native American music and culture and linguistics. Oh, wow. Well, and so a couple things around this subject, just not knowing much about it, but also thinking this is something I want to I'd like to talk about because I'd like people to then become more aware, too. What's been the biggest influence on basically other music, I'll say, or popular music or anything from Native Americans? I mean, I can imagine, like, there's a percussive element for sure, but what what is the biggest influence that you teach? Yeah, so Western music often is accompanied by some kind of chordal instrument, so piano, uh, guitar, old-school lute, uh, and... (laughs) Native American music is focused around percussive instruments. It could be drum, it could be rattles, it could be dance regalia. But one fun fact, there's actually a documentary called Rumble, and it's essentially Native American musicians who help build the rock and roll industry. And so hmm. the song is, uh, the title is based off of a song named Rumble. And it's actually just talked about all of these Native American musicians, like Jimi Hendrix, who had influential success they were influential and they had success in the industry and we don't necessarily talk about their upbringing or their backgrounds so that's always a fun thing to talk about in the class and the influence of music also there there's kind of like an explosion of indigenous media and television shows and movies all coming out right now and so it's actually nice to start to see emerging composers who are native as well so while i don't teach about them this semester it's definitely something i'm going to implement next semester once uh, more more of these options are available for streaming yeah so Jimi Hendrix was Native American mm-hmm. I had no idea yeah and the song Rumble the artist is Link Ray okay. so if you're into 50s and 60s music you'll probably know Link Ray 
I don't offhand, but I maybe it's just my youthfulness. That he wasn't super popular unless you were like, you know, like that was your thing. That was your jam. In it. Yeah. Yes. No, but that's a good shout. So definitely we'll check that out. And that's just, that's interesting. And then as far as linguistics, I mean, one thing I think the U.S. is really famous for is taking all that away from people and, mm-hmm. and wanting them to not have their culture and especially Native Americans as well. So on the subject of linguistics, what kind of things are you talking about there? So what I started focusing on when I was writing my master's document was looking at how American popular music actually stereotypes Native American music by uh, essentially creating situations where they use like faux or fake Native American music. And so I was kind of looking at the words that people would say and then while they're trying to be positive in nature, usually had some kind of negative aspect to it. So that's what I was focusing on lyrically and musically. I'm also looking at how uh, a sound can represent something. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you go, wah, wah, you're not saying anything, but everyone goes like, okay, that was bad, or, yeah, you know, yeah. that was a fail. So things like musically, how does it mean something to us if we were to put words to it? Huh. So what's an example of maybe a word or something that was used in a song that might have been offensive to... Yeah, I saw old labeling, essentially, in in, word, in songs, like in the 50s and 60s, they would just label mm. indigenous people using terms that, luckily now, today, we look at them as being derogatory. Sometimes it would more be like the concept of something. So there were, I don't even know, a ridiculous amount of songs that discuss like the concept of an Indian giver. So the idea that somebody oh. would give something and take it away. So a lot of people argue that it's just the concept. And I was like, well, sure, but we're actually displaying that concept as representative of a culture by specifically calling it an Indian giver. Right. In these songs, they actually will have a narrative around somebody who's indigenous taking something away. Hmm. So it's like very subtle things that you don't really think about because the songs are usually catchy. But then I was like... That's offensive. Well, how, drawing those conclusions to those things that are inaccurate is offensive. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Cool. So other than being a professor and doing the orchestra part-time, you referred to Onyx Lane. That's your production company. Yes. And that's with your partner. Patrick is Conlon, it, yes. And is he your partner partner or your... Okay, so... Both. He's partner both. in crime and partner in relationship. Okay. <laughs> Good. So, well, that's that's cool. And so, how did you guys decide to set that up and decide that was your path? Yeah. So, we actually met uh, each other while we were both in school uh, as students at the University of Oklahoma. He's a violinist. Uh, he's an audio engineer. He's a composer. And we actually formed uh, the Los Angeles New Music Ensemble. We formed the Los Angeles New Music Ensemble in 2008. And so we ran that. It was a classical ensemble that focused on contemporary new music. And so we did that for six years. Uh, we released an album. We played numerous mm-hmm. concerts, commissioned works. We recorded an album, and we were kind of beholden to the audio engineer. So we could express changes and things we wanted, and sometimes they were unable to fulfill the changes we wanted, or they just didn't hear the nuances that we were listening for. So mm-hmm. we were like, well, what if we just did it ourselves? Yeah. <laughs> Save a lot of money um, running out studio space and engineer fees. And we both dabbled in recording. So I got a job at the University of Oklahoma. He actually got a job as the assistant director at the University of Central Oklahoma. And they oh. have a campus that's called, uh, it's called ACM at UCO. It's the Academy of uh, contemporary music at the University of Central Oklahoma. Uh, He teaches audio production there. And so our company is uh, relatively new. It's about five years old, but we've been recording together and making albums for a really long time. We just essentially made it official. Looks, Mm -hmm. you know, legit business. And we also wanted to start separating out some of the funds. So if it was our academic paychecks versus when we were doing freelance, we wanted different business entities for those. So our main gig is recording classical music in either uh, form where, where it's like a live recording or for film. And so we essentially divide and conquer 
Uh, so Patrick will be uh, like the engineer. I'll produce. I will conduct. We both play in the sessions. We have a wonderful teammate. His name is Josh, B- Josh Bivens, and he uh, does the video aspect, and then we do the audio aspect. So we are busier than than we've ever been. It's like the pandemic was difficult where it took away all of the live performance opportunities, mm-hmm. but then all of these recording opportunities essentially replaced them. And are you recording for people outside of Oklahoma and in Oklahoma? Yeah, we obviously, we're our focus is Oklahoma City, but yeah, we're in LA a lot recording, New York. Patrick is Canadian, and so the borders have just opened up, so we're actually probably going to be recording in Ottawa uh, here next month. The Oklahoma legislator <laughs> just actually passed a bill for a rebate for film uh, production and post-production. Oh. And so there is uh, a company we're starting to work with, their Prairie Surf Media. So we're we're going to be collaborating with them to do the audio. And then they're doing, you know, the, the sound stages, the production, what we would, we're going to end up starting to do the post. Nice. Yeah, yeah. that's great. And well, and there's different cities like will end up losing contracts and stuff and then other ones can get them so yes i I think i think it's a 12-year bill and it's it's we're seeing a lot of influx in jobs and people coming Mm -hmm. from out of state you know to to work on projects here yeah i can see that because you were focused on performance for a while but now the performance is in a different way not necessarily was in front of an audience is there something that you find that's fulfilling about doing the recording versus the live performance and how does that differ for you as an artist? Yeah, there are things that you can do in front of a live audience and the reaction you get from that live audience that can never be replaced with recording. You know, like the reaction that the audience has because they see something live, mm-hmm. you feed off of that. And I'm yeah. sure you feed off of that too, you know, doing stand-up and things like that when people, yeah. you know, so that can't be taken away. Mm-hmm. What is amazing about recording is you could fix mistakes that you can't fix when it's live (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's really true so the problem with recording the well i say it's the problem it's the thing that's great about it and is also the problem is that you can fix and record and re-record at some point you still have to deem that it's okay that there's probably going to be some kind of mistake Mm -hmm. unless somebody is like a machine or not a person there's going to be inflections in the playing there's going to be little bloops and blips and that makes it human sounding versus computer generated which is yeah we all enjoy the natural right yeah yeah this sounds better i mean in general i think i don't know i agree i agree and so sometimes when you know you're in the studio it's like this I don't know, you're, you just get so sucked up into the perfection aspect of it mm-hmm. and you lose the human aspect of it. So it's yeah. like, it's okay if there's a mistake. Did it sound good? Did it add to, I don't know, interest in performance? But, I mean, you can make things sound really, really good after the fact, whereas you only have so much control when it's live. Yeah, sure. I mean, even when editing the podcast, sometimes I'll overdo it and then I'll just reverse what I did because it just doesn't sound like the person how they were talking anymore it sounds like some perfect version of that and I had someone comment to me oh you say like so much you must, you're definitely Californian and so I've become very self-conscious of that in the last few months but then on the other hand maybe it's just how I talk and it's a filler word and that's I don't know that's okay you know well I have People say the same exact thing about me. I say like and I say um. So I'm like, mm-hmm. like, um. But <laughs> isn't it just the way we process? Because our brains are going so fast and then yeah. it takes us a second to say what we want to say. Yeah, and we can try not to do it by pausing a lot, which I have to do right now if I want to do that. And I do notice I say the word so a lot right before starting a new thought. So there's some things you fix, but I think... And you can when you're done recording, but some things just kind of will sound good. And maybe if for you, like, yeah, it's a little area more organic and stuff sounding. It's a little bit better at some point, right? So, yeah. 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 It's, I think we sound Californian because that's where we grew up. <laughs> but I feel like uh, when I'm in the classroom and I'm teaching, my students feel like I'm more relatable. Yeah. 
I'm not always using academic speak. I mean, I can and I have to in conferences. I code switch all the time, but Mm -hmm. naturally, yeah. So everybody listen to this. Like, you know, this is just (laughs) natural speak. (laughs) This is how we talk. This is how we talk. I agree. No, it's even funny at at work. I mean, I can be really formal and my mom has commented that when I'm really angry, I get mean because I just elevate my vocabulary so that I become difficult to understand. And that's accurate. You know, it's a power play. Like, oh, all right. Well, I'm just going to now <laughs> be pretentious, right, as a as a way to get back at people. But I think there is something about just natural sound, whether it's how people talk or how how they play or anything like that. So I think that's pretty cool. Do you find, though, that you're, you are critical of your own performance? And are you kind of a perfectionist, even if you tell other people, like, hey, it's okay, or something? How's that? How do you handle yourself? Yeah, I'm very much a perfectionist, let's see, to a fault. But, yeah, so with any art form, when you are going through editing process, mm-hmm. you have to push yourself to be the best version that you can be. So the best performance you can play. And it is just something that I think being a perfectionist, I demand that perfection in other people, but I'm also realistic. You can demand perfection, but then there comes a point where, you know, it's only going to get as good as it's going to get. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the point where I think good producers can push people to that line and then try not, like, you know, if you try and go past it, you're actually going to essentially do the opposite. People are, usually end up playing worse. So what I see in myself as a producer is I'm very knowledgeable on good performance and what good performance should be. And then I'm really knowledgeable on the production aspect of it mm-hmm. and combining those two things. I think this makes me a really good producer. And so I'm, I think the next couple albums, we actually have three albums coming out that oh, wow. we produced and recorded in November. And yeah, I think they're really good representations of Onyx Lane and me as a producer and Patrick as an engineer. I pl- I'm playing on some of them. Some of them I'm just producing. Nice. As far as albums, then, how do you decide when to make an album and like on a theme? And how does that process work? I know for talking to different writers, including even knowing my own self and when I decide to write something, I know there's a certain process for me. What's your process to say, oh, this is something I'm just going to enjoy playing in my living room or whatever versus this is something I want to do a full production with? Oh, that's a good question. Let's see. So for music, for different genres, they have different focal points of what should be an album. So for classical music, it's usually there's a composer that you want to record and then you kind of craft an album around that. For other popular genres of music, it's it's more songs that you've written or maybe a concept or like a you know conceptual album that you mm-hmm. can put together. For me, the music I write, it can be played live, but it includes so many synthesized and manipulated sounds that mm-hmm. the best version of it will be recorded. And so the last album that Patrick and I just released is called Cube of Light. It is a combination of recording orchestral instruments with synthesizers and then manipulating that sound. And so we're actually in the process of actually doing an Atmos mix of it. So it's like the the surround sound plus the speakers. Oh, wow. Immersive audio version of it. So I guess it's like, you know, when we go to like big live performances mm-hmm. they actually include all of those immersive elements in the performance whereas like an album is just like you at home mm-hmm. so yeah. i always feel like my my recording projects are projects that you listen to in a space that elevates the music so like with cube of life for example yes you would suggest someone listen to it maybe more open in a room versus in headphones yeah and i guess headphones are also some headphones are also capable of doing the immersive audio mix now. Yeah. So once that is out, I think that's the optimal way to listen to it. So the album actually came out of, it was born through an art installation project that we did. Mm. So the first version of it was different music videos. We had contemporary dance videos that we made. So people would go into the space and they would watch these videos in a dark space and lay down on a yoga mat and be surrounded mm-hmm. by sound, like it was a blanket of sound. So 
we are actually working on doing a live version of this mm-hmm. that will include the immersive audio mix with live instruments. That you'll perform in Oklahoma or? So we're going to take it on tour. So uh, it's first, it's first version is actually going to be performed here in October down in Lawton, Oklahoma. I have um, a composer in residence for a new music festival they have down there this year. And then there is a new arts museum in Oklahoma City called Oklahoma Contemporary, and they have a beautiful performance space. So we're going to have everybody laying down, listening to the music, and then we are actually going to include visual light sculptures that go along with the music. Okay, that's cool. And did you envision those kind of when is that something you do when you're it, performing music or writing music? Do you have like do you envision certain things in your mind? I mean, some people even when they hear music they see color. For example, that's an actual thing, right? But yeah. do you have anything like that where you actually see things, or did it just come together for you guys in this case? I see things. I picture things. So some people might view this as. A learning disability, I actually think it's the exact opposite. So I'm dyslexic. And so when I see things, I actually see different versions of things than, say, Patrick does. And he thinks it's so creative. He's like, I never would have imagined that. And I would say, well, that's what I saw. And then it's for me, it's just the flipping of some letters. It's like a D and a B might look the same, especially if I'm not wearing my glasses. But artistically... The same thing happens where I reverse and I put things in retrograde or I flip them upside down and then it creates this different conceptual thing than when we started. So ideas are ideas, right? So you have an idea Mm -hmm. and what comes out of that idea can be sometimes limited by functionality and the ability to actually implement it. And so through seeing things sometimes like the opposite ways... We can, I can conceptualize things that others don't, and then obviously then you have to learn how to implement it, but that's a whole different thing. <laughs> huh, that's, that's really cool. It just creates like just a completely different way of looking at, at it mm-hmm. in general. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So if you guys, have you been on tour before mm-hmm. as an artist? Not as like Christina and Patrick, but yes, I played in a touring orchestra that toured throughout North America. I've been in smaller bands where I've toured, but this is the first time where it's just our music that we're going to take to different places. So the goal is we are we are both academics. We are both teachers. We're both performers yeah. and producers. And so I think our focus is going to be at, at like university campuses and actually work with students and how to create projects similar to what we do. Huh. So is there something with teaching that do you look back and think, I wish some teachers I had would have done this? Or do you have anything that maybe someone did that you try to apply even now? Because we are really impacted, I think, by our experiences as kids in school. Yeah, that's a good question. I've had a lot of teachers, and they've all been <laughs> influential in some way. In college, it was actually very interesting. So I wasn't necessarily encouraged to do things outside of my major. So as a clarinet performance major, they really wanted, everybody wanted me to focus solely on clarinet. Clarinet playing, clarinet performance, clarinet teaching. And I was always interested in other art forms and other genres. And I had two two clarinet professors. So Mr. Lemons, Keith Lemons at the University of New Mexico saw that I was interested in other things. And while he still tried to focus me only on clarinet, As a good professor would, he allowed me to explore other areas of music. And then my doctoral clarinet professor, his name's David Etheridge, and he was also very encouraging of doing things that include music but aren't just clarinet playing focused. So that was, that was, I think, I think that's why I kind of started to explore the realm of uh, music production to some extent. Uh, I have never studied music production formally. It's all self-taught to some extent. But I say that when you're in college, you just because you don't take a specific class on something doesn't mean you're not learning it in your classes. Right. Yeah. So I don't think I'm necessarily self-taught in that aspect. I think I absorbed it by yeah. being around, being part of projects, working with people. But I think that's a good point, though, because 
just thinking about even what I'm doing right now at work, I've just switched to marketing. And so I've this week, like learned or in the last week, learned to animate a logo using After Effects and, you know, have had to play with all this stuff with video that I hadn't done before. And then looking at a lot of my friend, Rob, who's a graphic designer, looking at how he basically taught himself, but absorbed things at work. And then other friends at work, like who are developers, that they're constantly doing that, right? They don't learn if you go to college and you're studying software development or engineering you're not going to learn everything that you need for the project x that you're doing now right and so it's important for people to know though that the things they're absorbing and learning that if they know how to apply them eventually then they can go in any direction so for you for example you could have just stayed on a full-time performance track probably just from what you've done but you've also chosen to pursue the other things you're passionate about Right. Correct. And for me, and this is not for everyone, so for performance, you are always playing somebody else's music. Mm. Usually in an orchestra, you don't, you're not even choosing what, what pieces you're playing. The concert is this. Here is your part. You're supposed to play it a specific way. And for me, I get bored doing that. You know, or I recompose what somebody has written. And so it's perfect. Being in a part-time orchestra is... Amazing. And they're doing such interesting programming at Fort Smith that it gives me the ability to play clarinet, which is truly my passion. And then Mm -hmm. I have the ability to create my own music, also playing clarinet, singing, playing guitar and and other various instruments. And so I'm I'm completely fulfilling my dreams, those those Mm -hmm. dreams I had in high school where I was like, I know I wanted to do music, but I don't specifically know what. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the typical dream is like, oh, yeah, I want to be on stage in a band, right. and that's it, right? Right. But then there's all these other ways to incorporate music. I think that's what interests me a lot about people when they're doing creative things is that there are different ways to incorporate it. It's not just that one path that you saw. So I like that even with your students, with the Capstone program, that that's what you guys are doing. Because I, I feel like even like parents listening, maybe they'll hear their kids say, oh, I want to be a YouTuber, which has got to be so frustrating as a parent now. Or I want to do, like, TikTok videos, but then it's like, okay, maybe those aren't viable career options necessarily, but they can hear that the kid likes video production, the kid likes performance, the kid likes posting things and, like, doing social media, and those are all viable ways. So, I don't know, I just feel like this, I can kind of tie those two together in this conversation. Absolutely. No, that is exactly right. And as you said, you know, you always want to be in a band and play on stage, but they actually never teach you that that's a business. Like a band is a business. Mm-hmm. And so in Oklahoma City here, I have had the opportunity to work a lot with Scott Booker, which is the, who is the manager of the Flaming Lips, who are based in Oklahoma City. And he's he's the I think he's his official title is the executive director of the Academy of Temporary Music at UCO. And so Patrick and him work together daily. And Mm -hmm. what the students are being taught when they go to that program is, okay, you have music, talent, you have the drive to be in a band, how do you run it as a business? And then Mm -hmm. even if you don't go into music specifically, the skills you're learning at that school are business related, which can be applied to what? Everything? (laughs) Choose an (laughs) industry, there you go. Yeah, yeah, there's business. I mean, it's all business, yeah. basically. Yes, you know. a university is a business. It's just a giant business. Yeah, it is. It really is. Well, yeah, especially in the, in the States. Oh, they yeah. They are. <laughs> they make a lot of money. So do you have anything else musically that you've been thinking that you want to aspire to? I mean, you're already doing quite a bit, but is there something that you're like, oh, I saw that, now that sounds interesting? I don't know if there's something new or a new avenue, but... The sad fact is, in the world of music production, there are only, of all the producers, only 2% of them are female, which is a scary statistic. And my goal as a musician, as a producer, and as a teacher is to try and change that and encourage women to go into the STEM fields, try and encourage that women should try and seek out production jobs whereas often they're discouraged to do so. And then like even when they're learning how to record, embracing those opportunities, and you know what? Taking advantage of them. Maybe, maybe you take lead on something. You don't always have to be second, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. So that's something I am hoping can change. 
I did do a workshop, uh, it was, I don't know, six months ago. I've kind of lost track of time, hasn't everybody? Yeah, yeah, basically, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, where it was a, it was a, it was a training session for producing, and mm. I was encouraged to see so many females sign up for it. So hopefully that will change in the future. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I mean, that's that's staggering. That statistic, two percent. You know. Yeah. That's bizarre. I mean, because you you know that more people are interested in music, but. If you don't see anyone like you doing it or doing that aspect of it, then mm-hmm. it's going to be hard to hard to know that you can pursue it. So is there anything else that you want to cover? If you're listening to this and you are a young budding producer or you're just an art person in general, one of the best things for me, actually, this sounds weird, was moving away from Los Angeles. And... Hmm. Why I say this is Oklahoma City is a new market. It is expanding its horizon. It's actually allowing people who don't have that much experience to take leadership roles in the arts and music industry and film industry and uh, just creative jobs in general. Uh, Mm -hmm. So because I left, now LA-based companies are drawing me back. And so if you move to a giant place, a very busy place, like a New York or a London or, you know, a Los Angeles, and you're Mm -hmm. not finding the work there, I would not think that you're not going to make it. I think you just need to find job, smaller job markets where you can build your skills and then you can move to those larger markets. Austin is a great example of that. It was this small town that believed in music and now it's a music, a giant music hub, right? Yeah. So Oklahoma City's done that for me. It is, it's still growing. It's still trying to find exactly what it, but a lot of bands like the Flynn Licks have had a lot of success starting here. And then essentially, you know, when you're in a band, you can live anywhere. Then you could, because yeah. you're on, you know, you just go on tour. So then uh, I think some, some other band lives in like Seattle. Maybe somebody else lives abroad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I know Brandy Carlisle, like they live in some compound in Oregon or something like that. Cause yeah. She did concerts during the pandemic and was just out there with her band yeah. and her family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah. No, that's a good shot. That's really good because one of my next questions would have been about advice. So that was perfect because that that is great advice. And also just the idea not to just give up because something didn't work out how you thought. Definitely, in the yeah. First place. If you want to go on the advice train, okay, let me tell you, teachers have all the advice. They don't necessarily <laughs> always do it. So this was gifted to me and of Mm -hmm. course at the time I was kind of like yeah whatever so there is this thing where you go to graduate and then you fear the future Mm -hmm. all creatives do this right so it's it's like do you just take a job for the sake of taking a job or do you try and use your skills you know that you learned in school and you know to have a creative creative job path Mm mm-hmm And so, of course, you need to pay the bills. Unfortunately, in the United States, you have to find a job that has health care or you're paying for it out of pocket. Yeah. And so that kind of does limit, you know, freelancers and the work they can't take on. But what I was told and what I do is don't wait for somebody to give you an opportunity. You have to create the opportunity for yourself. Mm. So if you want to record an album... Record an album. Don't wait for some label to go like, here, record an album. Yeah. So if, if you want if you want to make a music video, you know, what are your friends, you know, probably post some pretty good videos online, you know, collaborate together. And so the other thing that's really important with always creating opportunities for yourself is that then you're never not working, right? They might not mm-hmm. necessarily be paid gigs, but it shows that you're continually working in the field. And then people will see your work and then they want to hire you. Yeah. Yeah, because then you have something to show, yes, basically. exactly. Right, yeah, because if you... I've, I've talked to people before where they say, oh, I like doing X, Y, or Z, and then it's like, do you have a portfolio? And it really just means do you have somewhere online people can see what you're doing, whether it's your Facebook account or, like, if you're a designer of Behance account or something, right? Just something to show, so... Yes. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and then you're always practicing, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Because a lot of us are doing non-paid gigs just to get, <laughs> you know. Oh yeah, some yes. some exposure. Exactly. Cool. 
All right, so I have a set of questions that I like to ask everybody called the Fun Five. So the first one is, what is the oldest T-shirt you have and still wear? Oh, the oldest T-shirt I have is an OKC Thunder. It's a basketball team here. Free shirt when uh, they got into the playoffs. I think it was their second season. It is super whole. It is soft. I love sleeping in it. That's my oldest T-shirt. I have some... Vintage dresses from my mom that I pull out on occasion. Oh. Yeah, so they're they're long, flowy, you know, dresses. I occasionally fit into them, occasionally don't. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it depends on what part of the pandemic. Yeah, you're in, exactly. Basically. You're in the part where we're almost out, so we're like, okay, we got to get back in shape again. Or the yes. part where. <laughs> yeah. Nice. This actually, I'm excited for this one just because because of your music, but. If every day was really Groundhog's Day, like people have been saying, and like it's felt, I mean, it's feeling a little less like that now, but what song would you have your alarm set to play every morning? Oh, to reset, huh? Or just yeah, the start because, of the day? Just the start of the day, because, yeah. yeah, he had I've Got You Babe playing every time. Right. Which was, got annoying, to be honest, but yeah. Yeah. I don't know, the song that keeps coming was, ah, what a rock and roll all night. <laughs> And party every day. But that also seems like after like the twentieth day I would I would lose it. I would go yeah, I was gonna say like slip my my throat and I was like, that's really dramatic, it's not that dramatic. <laughs> yeah. It'd just be more anger just generally, right? Yeah. Or you'd get up ahead of your alarm to just avoid the whole thing. Yeah, maybe that yeah, maybe that's what it would be. <laughs> okay, so are we going with that one? Let's go with that one. All right. And coffee or tea or neither? Uh, coffee in the morning. I'm just mm-hmm. a one cup in the morning. And then around four o'clock, tea. What kind of tea do you do? I usually just do black tea. Earl Grey, if I'm feeling it. An Irish breakfast. I know I probably shouldn't drink that much caffeine at like three or four in the afternoon, but it happens. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what we do. I know. Okay. Can you think of a time that you just were laughing so hard you cried or th- something that makes you just nonstop laugh when you think of it? Usually when there's a hysterical laughing fit, it's in a recording session (laughs) and somebody does something and then somebody captures that thing and then they put it on loop. You would be surprised at how many people fart in sessions. It's like, (laughs) and you know what? It's like, they're probably just feeling it and it just happened. And then somebody inevitably will make it like a fart song based off of the fart. And you know, (laughs) that's that. (laughs) because the mics are so good they're just picking up everything right yes it's not like yeah that's funny because i mean even on i heard someone fart on a work call before you know (laughs) because and we've heard the toilet flush so yeah it's even worse than you're wearing headphones listening to this yeah so that's great i i I was teaching online Mm -hmm. and then one of the things that the students had to do was they had to put together a presentation but a video presentation now since the pandemic Mm -hmm. started and I had this student, he was just going, 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 and totally ripped ass, right? And he didn't acknowledge <laughs> it. He just kept going. And I watched that video like 20 times, like that clip, and I was like, no, maybe it's this chair, <laughs> you know? It was not a chair, because then I saw it in his eyes, right? His eyes got all big. And he didn't want to re-record it. He was like 15 minutes in. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's when he needs to know how to edit sound. Right? Because he probably could have just brought the level down for a moment and back up, and that's it. <laughs> oh, Girl, sir, you should sign up for this sound engineer. Yes, exactly. I got the class for you. <laughs> yeah, you could advertise those classes just for that. Ever have this happen during your dissertation? I know, right? Let us fix it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay, and last one. Who inspires you right now? Oh, okay. So I have been infatuated with Paul Simon, like, my entire <laughs> life. I, yeah. I probably should have chosen a Paul Simon song for, like, my song on a wake up to every day. How he reinvents himself, like, every five years is just so mm-hmm. impressive to me. And so, you know, he writes, he wrote songs, just, you know, folk music, rock music, Then he started collaborating and including world music into, you know, rock genres. And then he's been working with classical, like, new music ensemble, which was totally my jam when I started the LA New Music Ensemble. And then 
collaborating with that. I think he inspires me because he doesn't have any limits. If he has mm-hmm. an idea, he just doesn't. I mean, he wrote a musical that I think had like, it ran for a week. You know, I want to write a musical and if it fails in the first day, awesome. You know? Yeah, yeah. That's, I didn't know that, but that's actually kind of, that's interesting to know about the musical running for a week. I just did a solo show that was 30 minutes and it it felt really bad at, by the end of it. Like I'm doing one more performance, but it just wasn't what I wanted to do ultimately. But taking the risk and doing the process really helped me clarify a lot of things, which was good. So that's nice to hear about Paul Simon doing that because I didn't know that. But he's, yeah, he's super cool. I mean, when you just look at Simon and Garfunkel and then you look at Graceland, then you look at that song he did like, what, two years ago now about like backstage trying to get a ticket or whatever. Yeah. Trying to get backstage. Yeah. That was fun. Yeah. There's like, I mean, I was like listening to the radio and there's this new group called AJR. It's totally fun. Okay. If you're really into pop music, but it's, you know, like a higher sophisticated level of just recording a pop mm-hmm. song. They sample, it's technically a Paul Simon song. Our Garfunkel sang on. It's not a Simon and Garfunkel song. They sample it mm-hmm. in the song. And I was just like, the first time I heard it, I was like, no way. You know, and it's like, <laughs> all right. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay, AJR. Good. All right. So if people want to find you and f- either find your performances coming up of Cube of Light, I want to mention that because I think it's going to be awesome. I gave it a listen a couple times now, and it was kind of nice, honestly, just to have it. I've been listening to Lo-Fi a little bit in the background, but this actually it worked really well in the background, too. So just it was, it was really great. But if people want to find you or find where you're performing, what's the best way to do that? You probably search Onyx Lane. Our website is onyxlane.com. Our Instagram handle is onyx.lane because somebody already had it. And uh, Christina Giacona on social media. I have, you know, my own personal accounts, but they're all, you know, public and everything. And the best thing for me is if you're an artist, sure, yeah, obviously like, like or follow, that kind of thing. But like, reach out. I love talking to people who are, you know, starting out or mid-career. And uh, we can all learn from each other. Yeah, awesome. Well, Christina, thanks so much. It was a lot of fun talking to you. Well, thank you for having me. Been a long time. It has been a long time. (laughs) This is great. Thanks again for listening this week. You can find out more about the guest in the show notes and at RobbieHasSaid.com. Joe Mafia created the music just for this podcast. Find him on Spotify. That's Joe, M-A-F-F-I-A. And Rob Metke is responsible for our visual design. You can find him online by searching for Rob, M-E-T-K-E. Thanks, Rob. Let me know who you'd like to hear from or about your own experiences defining yourself outside of work. Follow at More Than Work Pod or send a message on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Or visit our website, morethanworkpod.com. Give us a follow on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review if you like. Thanks for listening to More Than Work. While being kind to others, don't forget to be kind to yourself. Thank you.